Mark chapter 13. As we've seen, Mark looks at um, Jesus as the suffering servant. And honestly, in in one of my classes this semester, uh, we're looking at the life of Christ. And, you know, this book is so inexhaustible, you'll never find a bottom to it. And I learned something in that class this semester that I've never seen before. And it was right there in my face. It was so obvious, but it's just one of those light bulb moments. I've told you that every gospel looks at Jesus from a different angle. But what I didn't realize is how obvious that angle is at the beginning of each gospel. You know, in Matthew, he looks at Jesus as the Messiah. And you see that in the genealogy at the beginning. Now, you think genealogies, they don't have any relevance to us. But the truth is, Matthew's genealogy follows Jesus all the way back to David. That's because he's the son of David. And as we've seen in Mark, that's how they identified him as the Messiah, as the son of David. Well, we've seen Mark looks at Jesus as the suffering servant. And in the beginning, what's interesting about Mark is there's no record of his birth like Matthew and Luke had. It starts right there at his ministry. And the truth is, who cares about the birth of a servant, the birth of a slave? And Luke, Luke looks at Jesus as the Son of Man and really emphasizes his humanity. And in that genealogy, Luke's genealogy is different from that of Matthew's because it follows Jesus all the way back to Adam. And it makes him a son of Adam. It connects him to the entire human race. I thought that was pretty interesting. And of course, John, we know, looks at Jesus as a son of God and just comes out, just right out and says it. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. And the Word was God. And so, uh, it's so interesting how that, that falls together. But we've seen in Mark that he is much more concerned with the works of Christ as opposed to his words. And uh, we get a little bit of a uh, difference here in Mark 13 because it's the longest discourse of Jesus in the book of Mark. And we've been seeing over the past several weeks, we had this incident in the temple that took up a chapter and a half about how the the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they had challenged Jesus and they asked him all kind of questions to try to trap him. But of course, Jesus ended up making them look like fools. And when they have left this sin in the temple, they're walking out of the temple. And as we saw last week, the disciples just kind of stand back in awe at this temple. They've seen hundreds of times, but they're just so in awe of this wonder of the ancient world. And what a building, what a great structure. And and Jesus does admit it, yes, this is a, a great building, but this, there's going to come a time where there won't be one stone left upon another. He prophesied of the destruction of the temple. And uh, sure enough, Titus and the Romans came in A.D. 70 and tore it apart all the way down to the footings, just like Jesus said. And as he was prophesying of the destruction of the temple, uh, the disciples made a mistake and they equated the end of the temple, the destruction of the temple, as the end of the world because that was the center of the Jewish world. And the mistake they made, as we saw, was they equated the end of their world with the end of the world. And if we're not careful, we'll do the exact same thing. Whatever's going on in Washington, oh, Jesus is coming back any second, you know, or whatever's going on in the Middle East, and we, we tend to do the same thing. And everybody's done that throughout the centuries. They take what's going on in their world and equate it with the end of the world. When the truth is, the point that Jesus was trying to make 
when he was talking about wars and rumors of wars and natural disasters, he was saying that these things are going to happen in every generation. You can expect that. Uh, but we don't need to let these things distract us because these things are not the end. He said that very clearly. And so we also looked at the fact that there's really a few different ways to interpret. The, when we talk about eschatology and we talk about the study of last things or the study of end times, there's a few different angles or interpretations that people take. And we need to be really careful to, to let the text dictate the meaning instead of trying to read our system into the text. And we talked about the preterist view or the purely historical view. And up to this point, we, we preached the first 13 verses of Mark chapter 13. And I told you that, yes, the preterist is correct in these first 13 verses. It is purely historical. These things have already happened. Jesus was clearly talking to the disciples about the destruction of the temple and how they would have to flee and get out of here. We're going to see a little bit more of that today. And so nothing we have seen so far has anything to do with the future. But then the other slant is the the full-blown dispensational view. And when they read these texts... Uh, they almost completely see everything in future tense and everything has a pure application to us today. And that's just not true. There's no way that you can take a full-blown dispensational view of Scripture and take what we've already seen in chapter 13 and make that future. You just can't do it. He's talking to the disciples. And so, but when you get to our text today in between verses 14 and 27, you begin to find that there is some overlap. There is some historical meaning and significance, but there's also some prophecies about the future. And if you can't dissect those things, you're going to be as confused as a termite in a yo-yo. You just can't make sense of it. You have to dissect it. You have to, to break these things down. And this text that I'm about to read this morning is one of the most misinterpreted, misunderstood texts. And there's good people that come to different conclusions about it. That's why I wouldn't throw stones at somebody. I didn't land exactly where I land on these things. But I think we can be confident about what we believe. And so, um, I did, before we even read the text, I just want to remind you and try to give you an, a 30,000 foot view of some of these different views on these things. When we talk about the end times, there's a group of people that believe in, a, in an event that we call the rapture of the church. We believe that. We're in that crowd. And that is where the Lord raptures or calls His church out, away. And we go up into the clouds to be with Him. And people will often say, well, the word rapture is not in the Bible. And it's not. But it's simply a term that somebody coined uh, to highlight a clear teaching that is in the Word. Listen, the word Trinity is not in the Bible. It's very clearly taught. Did you know that the word missionary is not in your King James Bible? I don't think anybody would try to argue there's no such thing as missionaries in the Bible. It's just a term that, that somebody came up with to encapsulate these teachings. That's one of the favorite punchlines of the cults that don't believe in a triune God. The word Trinity is not even in the Bible. That's a big nothing burger. That's all that is. And when you tell them... That missionaries, the word missionary, the word, uh, these different words are in the Bible, they look at you crossways because that's, they're just repeating what they've been told. I believe the teaching is clearly there. 
But even among the groups that believe in the rapture, there are differing opinions as to when that happens. You have the pre-tribulation crowd. That's us. We believe that God is going to rapture the church out. Christ is going to call His bride out prior to the seven-year tribulation, the great tribulation period, where God is going to pour His wrath out, unbridled wrath upon this earth. Then there is the mid-tribulation crowd that believes at the three-and-a-half-year point that God is going to rapture the church out. Then there is the... Uh, post-tribulation view, where at the end of the tribulation, right before the Lord returns, He's going to call us out and then we're going to come back down with Him. And so you see the rapture crowd. And then there is the the non-rapture crowd that doesn't believe in any kind of rapture at all. Uh, I think about the the post-millennials, which is what most of our Baptist forefathers believed. And they didn't believe in a rapture, but what they did believe in is that the gospel over time would have such a great effect on the world that basically just about everybody gets saved, the world straightens out, and is already almost living in a euphoria, and we basically usher in the kingdom and the reign of Christ. Um, then you have the, the amillennials, and most of the reformers were amillennial. That, that word simply means no millennium. They don't, even though they do believe that Christ is going to return, there's going to be a general judgment and all that, they don't believe in a literal thousand year reign on the earth. And so I, I think there's good Christian people that probably fit into all those camps. I just firmly believe in a pre tribulation rapture with a pre millennial return of Christ. He's going to return and then reign for a thousand years on this earth. So that's where we're at. But I said all that to say this. When you read the Gospels, and especially places like Mark 13, you cannot find the rapture of the church in there. That's not the context. He's talking to the disciples and specifically to the Jews about the second coming and His kingdom. That's what they would have been looking for. And so when you learn to decipher that, it it begins to make a lot more sense. And so we're trying to break this down. A lot of stuff to throw at you today, but I want to try to... Uh, Make it as simple as possible. But with that in mind, let's read our text. We're in Mark chapter 13, beginning in verse 14. It says, But when you shall see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing where it ought not, let him that readeth understand. Then let them that be in Judea flee to the mountains. And let him that is on the housetop not go down into the house, neither enter therein to take anything out of his house. And let him that is in the field not turn back again for to take up his garment. But woe to them that are with child, and to them that give suck in those days. And pray ye that your flight be not in the winter. For in those days shall be affliction, such as was not from the beginning of the creation, which God created unto this time, neither shall be. And except that the Lord had shortened those days, no flesh shall be saved, but for the elect's sake, whom He hath chosen." He hath shortened the days, and then if any man shall say to you, Lo, here is Christ, or lo, he is there, believe him not. For false Christ and false prophets shall arise, and shall show signs and wonders, to seduce, if it were possible, even the elect. But take ye heed, behold, I have foretold you all things. But in those days after that tribulation, the sun shall be darkened, and the moon shall not give her light, and the stars of heaven shall fall. 
And the powers that are in heaven shall be shaken. And then shall they see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then shall He send His angels, and shall gather together His elect from the four winds, and from the uttermost part of the earth uh, to the uttermost part of heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love You. We're so thankful for the truths and the songs that we've been able to sing. Thank You for just a, a chance to fellowship with Your people. God, to hear Your Word and... I just pray that you help me, Lord, such a, a deep, confusing at times text. And I just pray that we could leave here encouraged and not confused. And, Lord, that we could just give you the glory, that our focus would be on your return, God. And, Lord, I just pray that you empty me in sin self, fill me with your Holy Spirit, and meet us all where we're at today and show us where we need to be. It's in Christ's name I pray these things. Amen. So this morning we're looking at... Um, the end times specifically, part two of what we talked about last week. The end is near, or is it, part two. And most specifically, I'm dealing today with the abomination of desolation. This is super important. The abomination of desolation. I really want us to leave here at least knowing what that is. Um, and so, there's a few things I want you to know about the abomination of desolation. Um, really... This is, this is really, really important, uh, the abomination of desolation, because it is one of the linchpins of end-time study. And what you believe about what the abomination of desolation is and when it happened is going to determine whether you take a preterist view of Scripture or a futuristic view of Scripture, or if you understand that there is some overlap. I fall in that camp. I'm in that third camp. I believe there's some overlap. Um, but the first thing we need to do in the first point is dissecting the text. We, we have to do this in any study that we do, but especially when it comes to end times. But what I want to do here, a little bit different than I've done in the past, for this point anyway, I want us to walk through this text, at least the first part of it, and I want to show you why both the preterist view has strengths and weaknesses and why the fully blown dispensational view has strengths and weaknesses. And we have to dissect the two. We can't, we can't just come to it and take a fully historic view as if all of these things happened in AD 70. You look crazy if you do that. Or if you come to it and say that all of these things are in the future and none of these things had to do with the disciples that Jesus was talking about, you look crazy doing that too. So let's walk through these and compare and contrast these two slants. Um, let's read this together. It says, After two days, oh, excuse me, and as he went out from the temple, well, here I am. It, it would make sense if I studied from the same Bible I preached from. Verse 14 of chapter 13. But when you shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing where it ought not, let him that readeth it understandeth. Then let him that be in Judea flee unto the mountains. Now, we're going to come back to this verse 14 because the whole crux of this message lies here. So I want to put a pen in this and come back. But I do want to say the preterist already has some traction here because Jesus says here, He's talking to the disciples. He said, when you see this take place, He said, let them that be in Judea flee to the mountains. That is a very narrow, specific audience. 
And what I've seen people do is they completely ignore that context. And then they come down to verse 15. It says, Let him that is on the housetop not go into the house, neither enter therein to take anything out of his house. And let him that is in the field not turn back again to take up his garments. But woe to them that are with child and to them that give suck in those days. And pray that your father, uh, that your flight be not in the, in the winter. And so... The preterist, I believe, has the correct view of what we just read because if, if you try to make these specific verses about the great tribulation period, you just can't make that stick. He's talking to the people in Judea. When they see this specific thing happen, they're to flee to the mountains. And if we were, if we were just to read this today and take a, a purely futuristic view of this, it really it just doesn't make sense. And now we could read this and we could say, oh, you know, we could make it to the mountains. But what about the people in Florida that read this? They're going to be in trouble. There's not any mountains there. So it's talking to a specific group at a specific time. Uh, But then the Lord shifts gears here very subtly. And then he begins to talk about things that can't possibly have anything to do with AD 70 or prior to that. Um, Let's look at verse 19. For in those days shall be affliction, such as was not seen from the beginning of the creation, which God created unto this time, neither shall you be. Now, I believe what he's done here, and I think we're going to see this in just a minute. Jesus has taken these literal historical events in Jerusalem, and they foreshadow some things to come. That's not unusual with prophecy in Scripture. It's not unusual at all for a prophecy to have dual meaning. And so now, without just flat out saying it, he has shifted to a future event. Because if you take a purely historic view, there's no way you can make sense out of this. He said in in these days that he's now talking about, this tribulation, there's been nothing seen like it in the history of the world. That would include the great flood that killed everybody, killed everything in the world, save Noah and his family. It would also include all the plagues of Egypt that God struck Egypt with. And I don't think you can say that about what happened in AD 70 with the destruction of the temple and all the things surrounding that. I don't think you can make that stick. Especially when we get to verse 20. And he said, And except that the Lord had shortened those days, no flesh could be saved. Now, he's not talking about shortening the 24-hour period. He's talking about shortening the, the total length of those days. Well, he does do that in the tribulation period. It's got a length of seven years, three, the last three and a half of which is when the horrible wrath and judgment come. It said, no, and during that time in the tribulation, one-third of the world's population is going to die. That's three and a half years Billions of people? Yeah, nothing's ever been seen like that. And so, of course, if he didn't shorten this judgment, if he just continued out, everybody would die. It says, Whom he hath chosen, he hath shortened the days. And then if any man shall say to you, Lo, here is Christ, or lo, he is there, believe him not. For false Christ and false prophets shall rise, and shall show signs and wonders to seduce, if it were possible even for the elect." Now, if these things happened in A.D. 70 or anywhere around that time, where are they at? What are these 
um, unbelievable things that we don't see anywhere around this time in history. We don't find anything like this. And that is the weakness of the purely preterist position. They don't have any clue as to what these things are actually talking about. All they can do is make assumptions that never make sense. It says um, in verse 23, But take ye heed, behold, I have foretold you all things. Then he gets even more specific. But in those days... After that tribulation, he's getting very specific about a time of great tribulation here. The sun shall be darkened, and the moon shall not give her light, and the stars of heaven shall fall, and the powers that are in heaven shall be shaken. And then shall they see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then shall he send his angels, and shall gather together his elect from the four winds, from the uttermost part of the earth to the uttermost part of heaven. Now... This is, this is the Achilles' heel of the purely preterist position. They cannot answer when this happened. They literally have to say that Jesus Christ returned in AD 70 or around that time. They also have to say that, yeah, the, the moon was darkened, the stars fell from the sky, um, all of these things happened. What? No, they didn't. Those things did not happen. They have not happened. And then they have to get into this realm of, well, it was a spiritual return. Well, the Jehovah's Witnesses say the same thing, folks. That's not a side I want to be on. So you see the weakness here of the purely preterist position and also of the purely dispensational position. You have to to take this in context. And so I think that we see the overlap here and how we... We have to understand, I believe it's purely preterist, almost 100% preterist, until you get to verse 19. And I think Jesus suddenly shifts gears. And now He's taking these literal events in Israel to foreshadow an even greater event at the end time, the, the Great Tribulation period. And so let's, let's look at some more things. We've seen the dissecting of the text. I want to look at the defining, the second point, the defining of the abomination of desolation. Your definition about this, as I said, will determine everything you believe about the end times. So what is the abomination of desolation? Well, let me talk about, first of all, the thing that everybody agrees on. No matter what position you take about the end time, everybody agrees that the abomination of desolation has something to do with the desecration of the temple in Jerusalem. Everybody agrees about that. The question is, what is it, who does it, and when does it take place? Well, it says here in our text, uh, verse 14, But when you shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing where it ought not to be so, we see that Daniel prophesied about this event. And you don't have to turn here, but jot this down and go look at it in your own time. Daniel chapter 8, verses thir- uh, verse 13, says that the abomination of desolation will stop the temple sacrifices unto God, and that the host of the temple should be trodden underfoot. We know that. Uh, Daniel chapter 9 and verse 27, it says that not only will the temple sacrifices unto God stop, but that there would also be abominable sacrifices made unto false gods. And so everybody agrees about that. The million-dollar question is... Has the abomination of desolation already happened, or is it a future event? Um, And here's what I would say. I would say that 
obviously you can look throughout the centuries in history and there have been multiple times where the temple was desecrated in, a, in an abominable way. There's no doubt about that. But I don't think anything that's happened to this point is the abomination of desolation. I believe it's a future event. And I believe that uh, when you look at the preterist view, they try to attempt to explain that it's already happened and they try to explain what it is. Now, some try to say that the abomination of desolation was when um, Antiochus Epiphanes or Antiochus IV or Antiochus, as some people say, um, that he did this when he actually set up a statue of Zeus inside the temple and that they had pigs sacrificed unto Zeus. Now, obviously pigs were unclean to the Jews and Zeus is a false god set up in the temple. That was definitely an A-N, abomination of desolation. But the, the weakness of this is that that event happened in 167 B.C., This is well before the time of Christ. And when Christ speaks of this, it's clearly a future event. You cannot make that fit. Now, I believe it's a good precursor. I believe it's almost a perfect foreshadowing of what the event actually is. And I'll talk about this in just a second. But then there's other events that the preterist tries to say that would qualify as the abomination of desolation. Some try to say it's when the Roman emperor Caligula uh, erected a statue of himself in the temple in A.D. 40. But the temple sacrifices were never really stopped. And also, if this is the case, why would the people in Judea need to flee 30 years prior to the coming of Titus and the Romans? You, you can't make that make sense. Some say that it was when the Romans entered into the holy place when they destroyed the temple. And certainly, uh, these pagan Gentiles going into the holy place of the temple would definitely be sacrilege. It would be, definitely be desecration. But the problem with that is, by then it's too late to flee to the mountains. If you wait until the Roman armies are already there, it's too late. So that doesn't fit. And, and here's the ultimate thing that the predators cannot answer. What in the world was this event? This event was so big, it was so monumental, that Daniel prophesied about it in the Old Testament at least three times. Jesus prophesied about it. And as we're going to see in a minute, Paul also prophesied about it. And we can look back and we don't have a clue as to what it was. It was a ripple in the ocean. Nobody knows. That's the weakness of the argument. And now when it comes to the destruction of the temple, everybody knows what Jesus was talking about. We can clearly look in history and see that Titus came in in AD 70 and destroyed the temple. So we get that. But we don't have that with the abomination of desolation. But then the preterists would ask, okay, he was very specifically talking to the disciples about something they would see in their lifetime, and how can we possibly take that and apply it to us? I've got two reasons. Number one, I believe that that there was an event prior to the destruction of the temple that the disciples could look at and say, hey, that's what Jesus was talking about. We need to get out of here. But I think that was a foreshadowing event of a future thing. And I believe that the abomination of desolation is when the Antichrist, under the possession and power of Satan, sits in the newly built temple and declares himself to be God and accepts sacrifices and worship as if he was God. I believe that's exactly what it is. And I believe we even see a clue to this 
In verse 14, this is amazing. We cannot miss this. This is amazing to me. It says, But when you shall see, verse 14, But when you shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing where it ought not, and in Matthew's gospel, in, in I believe it's chapter 24 and verse 15, he says, standing in the holy place, so we know it takes place within the temple. But then look at the parentheses right here. It says, Let him that readeth understand. Now, this is amazing. And let me ask this, because I was, I was studying, after, I always study after, after multiple study Bibles, and that's why I got messed up trying to read them a ago, because I've almost memorized where everything's at in my study Bible. My preaching Bible is different. I get thrown off sometimes. But what I found interesting is, in one of my study Bibles, which is a red letter edition, all the words of Christ are in red. We understand the whole thing is the Word of God, but it's kind of a neat study tool to keep up with the conversation. And what I found interesting is that one of my study Bibles, all the way from verse 14 to 27, the entire text we're reading this morning, that every single word was in red. But then in one of my other study Bibles, everything was red except what was in this parentheses. Let him that readeth understand. It was in black, as if it wasn't the specific words of Christ. Does anybody see that in their red letter this morning? And I think, I think the other Bible's right. It, it should be in black because Jesus didn't stop talking to His disciples and say, Let him that readeth understandeth. It fits nowhere in the text. They would have gone, What? <laughs> this is the only time in all of the Bible... From Genesis to Revelation, this is the only time that the, the writer, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, stopped the narrative and reaches out directly to the reader and says, you need to pay attention to this. You need to understand what's going on in reference to the abomination of desolation. Now, if it had nothing to do with us, the reader, and if all of this is already passed, that makes no sense. So, yes, it was something that the disciples could look to and say, hey, when you get out of here, but it also speaks to a future event that hasn't happened yet. The Antichrist coming to the temple, sitting, enthroning himself as God, accepting worship as God. And so that's where this comes into future. And very quickly, because I've already taken longer than I'm into at this point in time, uh, just very quickly, I want us to turn to the places. We need to ask, us, does this have support? In other parts of Scripture, and yes, it does. Let's very quickly let's turn to Second Thessalonians. We will come back to Mark, so keep your place. But go to Second Thessalonians chapter two. Second Thessalonians chapter two. Second Thessalonians two and verse one it says, "Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto Him." And I believe He makes a distinction here between the second coming of Christ and the rapture. That's why there's a comma, and then it says, and by our gathering unto Him. Then he goes on to, to talk about those events in sequence, and once again we have to dissect what he's talking about. It says that you be not soon shaken in mind, or be troubled, neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter, as from us, as the day of Christ is at hand. Let no man deceive you by any means. For that day, talking about the day of the Lord, the second coming, except there come a falling away first. And that the man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. Now this is where I believe the, the mid-trib crowd and even some of the post-trib crowd gets it wrong. They say that the Antichrist has to be revealed 
before the rapture. But this is talking about the second coming here. And so this happens after the rapture and yet prior to the second coming. Um, But it's talking about the Antichrist here, the man of sin, the son of perdition. Verse 4 it says, "...who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he is God." Here it is, "...sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Remember ye not that when I was yet with you I told you these things." And now know what withholdeth that he might be revealed in his time. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. And only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of way. That's talking about the Holy Spirit and his restraining influence in the world. I would say specifically through Christians in the gospel and the preached word when we get out of here. It says verse 8, And then after that, after we're taken out, after that shall this wicked be revealed whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of His mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of His coming. Even Him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish because they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved. And so we clearly see that Paul thought this was a future event in which this person who was under the power of Satan, sat in the temple and declared himself to be God. Now, I know what the preterists would say. They would say, yes, but when Paul wrote 2 Thessalonians, it was only about A.D. 51. This is still prior to the destruction of the temple. And I would say, okay, that is right. When did this happen? Show me in history when this happened. Shouldn't I mean, if, if Daniel talked about it, if Jesus talked about it, if Paul talked about it, where is it? Can't find it. Another, another thing we should go to, and I'm, I'm taking much longer than I wanted to, but I won't go here for the sake of time, but write this down in your notes, look at it later. In the book of Revelation, chapter 13, if you read verses about 1 through 8 and even on to verse 12, I think it clarifies a little more. It talks about the beast that rises out of the sea. That's not talking about the ocean. It's talking about this man that rises out of the sea of humanity. And he does miracles and signs and wonders just like we read about in 2 Thessalonians. And the Bible says that the whole world worships him. It's talking about the same person, this son of perdition, this man of sin. And so I'll say this before I move on to my last point and I'll begin to wind this down. But we see, and, and this is important to understand this, Obviously, we've talked about the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. The temple has never been rebuilt. The Jews have not had a temple in 2,000 years. That system of sacrifice has gone by the wayside just like Jesus said it would. We don't need those things anymore because Christ has come. He said it would be done away with. He was the new temple on the cross, and now we're the temple that He's ascended into heaven and given us His Spirit. Um, But the thing is, when we talk about the Antichrist sitting in the temple, we're talking about a physical temple. I believe that a third temple will be built. And I believe, um, I told you this, that the Golden Dome of the Rock in Jerusalem that we think about when we think of Jerusalem is a Muslim mosque, the Mosque of Omar. It is sitting on the old temple site. I believe that temple will have to be destroyed. That mosque will have to be destroyed for the new temple to be built. And so I've told you that really the, the Bible is not nearly as specific about end times as we would like to believe. 
But I will say this, there may be some of these things. I don't know this. Please don't leave here saying I said these things emphatically. But some of these things could possibly happen prior to the rapture. Now, I will say this. If something happens and that golden dome of the rock gets destroyed, gets blown up, who knows what happens. If it gets blown up and or if they begin to build a new temple, you better get your bags packed. I will say that. And I find this interesting. When I went to Jerusalem, when I went to Israel, you know, at Jerusalem, the, the Temple Mount is divided into two different sections. You have the Jewish section on one side of the Western Wall, and you have the Muslim section on the other. And the Muslim section is the section of the old temple site where the, the Mosque of Omar is today. And they're not allowed to pass from side to side. I made mention of this once, but when you walk from the Jewish side to the Muslim side, you have to go through this gate where there's armed guards there. And in four or five different languages, it says if there's any Jews caught past this point, you will be shot on sight. And so it's very, uh, very intimidating. Um, and so it's under Muslim control. But on the Temple Mount, on the Jewish side, you can go in this museum. And in this museum, it's called the Temple Society. And you walk through this museum, and it's really... There is some things about the past, but it's just as much about the future. They have recreated... Every single item in the old temple that would go in the new temple. They've got a replica of the brazen altar and a replica of the priestly robe with the 12 stones and a replica of a handmade veil that's 8 inches thick. And they've got all these things. It's really amazing. But the last place you go to, of all things, is the gift shop. You know how that works. (laughs) But before you walk in the gift shop, they tell you, They said, there is a group of us that have been working for decades to get this new temple built. We've got the money. We've got the plans. We've got the blueprints. And the only thing that we're waiting on is for some of these government officials to give us permission to do it. And the reason they won't do it is because there's a good chance it would would cause some kind of war. I mean, the Muslims, they're not just going to give that up. Here, you can destroy our dome and build your temple here. That's not going to happen without a fight. That's why they won't do it. But what a time to happen. What a time for the Antichrist to come in and say, hey, let's talk this over. I tell you what, let's let's do a ceasefire and you can go ahead and build your temple. You know, I mean, you can almost just see it. And when you go in the gift shop, there's actually paintings. Somebody has painted of cranes and heavy equipment stacking stones to build a new temple. There's people very seriously working toward that end. And so that's exciting. So we see, we do see, I believe, a description. We see what the abomination of desolation is. But then thirdly and lastly, and I'm not going to be long with this, but it's, this is the most important part of what, anything we've talked about so far. Give me five more minutes. Let's go back to Mark chapter 13 and we'll close. The third thing I I think we see in all this, and by far the most important, is the definite return of Christ. Look at verse 24. But in those days after that tribulation, the sun shall be darkened and the moon shall not give her light, and the stars of heaven shall fall and the powers that are in heaven shall be shaken, and then shall they see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then shall He send His angels... 
and shall gather together his elect from the four winds, from the uttermost part of the earth to the uttermost part of heaven. Very quickly, we read this, this last verse, and it almost seems like a rapture at the point of his return, which would, you know, the post mill, I mean, the, the post trib people love that. But the thing is, this is not talking about a rapture of the church. You can find this event in Revelation 16 and verse 15. It is a gathering together of all the saved on the earth during the tribulation. There will be a lot of Jews saved in the tribulation. And He is going to gather them together for this event, the second coming. Nobody is going to miss this event. But this is not the rapture of the church at all. So what does this mean? At the end of the tribulation, the sun's going to be dark, the stars are going to fall, the moon's not going to give her light. And you look in Matthew's gospel, chapter 24, he gives even more details about all these things. Now, I tell you the mistake that many people have made, even including myself at times, is we look at these things and we say, oh, these are signs right before the rapture. And like I said, I made a joke. John Hagee writes a new book every time there's an off-color moon. He's written a book called The Four Blood Moons and his prediction didn't come true and he's got to write another one and another one and another one. But here's the thing. This is talking about the time after the rapture and before the second coming. So this is only going to happen during the tribulation. We're not going to see this stuff. It has no bearing on us at all. And it takes place at the very end right at the coming of Christ. And you know what I I really think this is and I, I found a lot of other scholars that believe this. I believe it has to do with the grand entrance of the Lord. The, the, the moon and the stars and the sun and all these things happening. Everybody's going to be looking up, what in the world? And then He comes. And I got to thinking about this. You know, the world in general loves a grand entrance. You know that? And I got to thinking about all of the different entrances that we like. I mean, think about the entrance of the bride at a wedding. Do we not? The... You know, she's kept hidden. She's kept secret. In most cases, the, the husband, the, the groom doesn't see her before the wedding. And, and everybody rises for the entrance of the bride and they play the song. And, and we've, we've seen that entrance. And wow, what an entrance. What a train. What a dress. Or there's something we admire. And, and then I thought about other entrances. And, you know, I know this is not going to help my, uh, my redneck uh, Alabama stereotype, but I, I used to like to watch wrestling when I was, or wrestling as we were growing up. And <laughs> WWF and all that before it became too vulgar. It was, at least, they at least pretended to be family friendly back then. But you know, the, the wrestling and the athletes and the moves, they were all great, but the best part was the entrance. Yeah. I mean, you know, uh, we have a WWF fan, he, he understands this. <laughs> but. But they had a special song or something. And man, when those first few notes hit and everybody knew who was fixing to walk out, the crowd goes crazy. And I tell you, the best entrances were were the surprise entrances. Maybe for a a legend of the past that had retired and he hadn't been seen in years and and his song plays and the crowd loses their minds, you know. Or it's it's, it's Hogan or it's The Rock or it's, you know, and it's, they go, they lose their minds. Same thing with boxers when they walk out. Uh, Deontay Wilder, the, the former heavyweight champ, is from Tuscaloosa. He just fought Tyson Fury a few weeks ago. And, and I got online just to watch their, their, uh, their song and their entrance, man. They walked out there. Deontay had this weird mask going all the way down. I mean, it's, we love those entrances, don't we? Um, I think about 
once again, not doing well for my stereotype here, but uh, went to the Talladega Speedway, the, the biggest oval, one of the biggest ovals in the world, two and a half miles of guys going 200 miles an hour with 800 horsepower driving this far apart. And I'll never forget, I went in July and it was so hot, it was miserable. I don't see how anybody survived. But even despite the heat, uh, Talladega is a two and a half mile oval, and the vast majority of the stands are on one side. It stretches a little over a mile, the stands do. That particular day I was there, there was 212,000 people there. And the track favorite, without any shadow of a doubt, is Dale Earnhardt Jr. He's not racing anymore, but he was. This was after his dad had died, and they just loved Dale Earnhardt Jr. And I'll never forget, I was sitting there um, right at the last turn, and the, the finish line is kind of to my right, so they're coming this way. And there's this part of the track on the other side where you, there's a blind spot. You can't see the, the cars. And Junior was running in third place. I'll never forget this. And you could see, you could hear screeching of tires and twisted metal. And then you could see smoke rising up. And it was right about the place where Junior would have been. And somebody, everybody thought he had had a wreck. And for that split second, 212,000 people at the same time go, <gasps> they sighed. They, they, they were scared, you know, because they thought their champion had had a wreck. But what happened was, is the guys in first and second right ahead of him had got tied up and he managed to get around them. So, son, when he came around that last turn, he was in front. And that place lost their minds, man. You'd have thought Ben-Hur was winning the race. I mean, it was, it, was, it was awesome. It was really awesome. I know that's carnal, but it was awesome. And uh, because it was almost like he was making his grand entrance, you know. He, he didn't have a wreck. He was in first, you know. And, and I know, listen, I know I'm using a lot of examples, and I know it's borderline idolatry, and it is. But my point is, we love an entrance. And this is the last illustration I'll give before I really get to this point. When it comes to Alabama football, it's a big deal over there, if y'all don't know. And the whole state shuts down when Alabama plays. I'm not, I'm not kidding about this. If you're having a wedding, if you're getting married in the state of Alabama, you better check the schedule and make sure it's not on a football Saturday, because you want people to come to your wedding. I know that's sad. It's the way it is. And when you're sitting in the stadium, I'm going to give you a mind picture because it really is an incredible experience. But when you go to an Alabama game, you're sitting in a stadium that seats over 102,000 people. 102,000 people, a sea of crimson and red. There's, even, there's more on the stairways. It's more, they get more than 102,000 in there. I can assure you that. And, and right up to the buildup, the, when the team runs out, they... The first thing they do is everything kind of gets quiet. And all of a sudden, the marching band comes out like soldiers in line, like military. And they, they walk from the ends of the field in toward like the goalpost and the tunnels behind that. And then they, you know, the drums are beating and they're walking and they walk in step and they make kind of a tunnel or two lanes right there where the tunnel is at. And then all of a sudden, this, this epic music starts up over the speakers and all the huge TVs that are probably bigger than this room comes on. And it starts talking. It's got quotes from Bear Bryant. And they show some of the greatest plays in Bama history. And, man, the, the, the emotion is just building and building and building. And then the band strikes up. And then the last thing that happens, the, you see this fog beginning to build up in the tunnel. And the guy comes over the speakers and he says, 28 national championships. 18 or, or 18 SEC. I forget it. So many of them I forget. And he talks about all the accolades. And it says the one, the only, 
Alabama football. And then the team runs out, and I'm talking about it. You can't even hear yourself think. I mean, and all you can do is feel sorry for those guys that they're playing against because it's fixing to be bad for them. <laughs> and I, I, I know I've, I've beat a dead horse. I'm trying to prove the point. We love a grand entrance. And he's going to give them one. He is going to give them one. It's almost as if creation is celebrating the return of its creator. Creation is celebrating the return of its king. And it can't stand itself. The stars are falling and the sun is refusing to shine. And I mean, there, he's going to give them an entrance. And here's the most important thing about this. When we study the end times, the, the tendency, the temptation is to only think about the when. I don't want you to get caught up in that. It, it causes unnecessary distraction. It causes unnecessary division with other believers in Christ because all Christians believe He's coming back. And in that, we can rejoice. But I want you, instead of thinking about the when, I want you to concentrate on the fact that it's going to happen. He's coming back and He's going to give them an entrance. Amen. Revelation 20, and we're done. Revelation 20, I want you to see this event for yourself. Just a small snippet of it. Excuse me, Revelation 19. I was thinking about the great white throne judgment there for a minute. We're not there yet. Revelation 19, verse 11. John is certainly speaking in future tense, isn't he? And I saw heaven open... And behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vessel dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. I think we heard about him somewhere in John, didn't we? And the armies which were in heaven followed upon him. That's us. That's us. wonder how we got there. Maybe in a pre-trib rapture. What do you think? It says, um, The armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. He treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Friend, if that don't get you excited, I don't know what I can do. That should be our focus. It's going to be good to be saved on that day, isn't it? He's coming back, folks. The the key is, are you ready? Are you ready? Because one day in death or in His return, you will meet Him. Are you ready? Are you saved? Are you serving? Are you ready? Because if you really believe that, we need to make way for the King. Make way for the King. And that's really, just as John the Baptist did, that's what we do. Repent and believe the gospel. The kingdom of God is at hand.